Here we are, Monday, December 19th, creeping up closer to Christmas here in the winter solstice. I'm going to talk about some news here. Not the longest show today planned ahead, uh, not the most news to talk about, but a couple of reviews, a couple of thoughts, some analysis uh, to discuss here on what's happening. This time of the year is characteristically slow when it comes to news cycles, uh, seasonally speaking. You have uh, the situation in which the Senate is in this week, the House is out, and so you have less news coming out of, say, Congress. You have a lot of the federal government going on vacation, uh, even within some of the more important agencies. Of course, you have a lot of journalists who are taking days off uh, to the extent that journalists even exist anymore and news personalities. And so the news cycle, uh, even when there is plenty of news to discuss, the news cycle, the way that news is reported and, and comes to light, slows down around this time of the year, every year. Uh, it happens again and again. <clears throat> uh, somebody comments here on the show, are you reading the Schellenberger thread? Will there be any actual fallout? Well, no, I don't know. I mean, the the, the FBI told Twitter what to do. That's the main, um, you know, sort of takeaway. There were close communications with the FBI, CIA, NSA. Uh, Michael Schellenberger, of course, uh, doing a, a tranche of these Twitter documents on Twitter. I will tell you, amid all of these documents and uproar and new policies in terms of service and all of this and excitement over at Twitter, I will tell you one thing I certainly wouldn't mind is being back on Twitter. Uh, my account remains suspended. A number of conservative accounts brought back in the last week, including uh, the pillow guy, Mike Lindell, the pillow man, uh, DC Drano, uh, Rogan uh, over there. Uh, of course, Loomer was brought back a little bit earlier and, and Roger Stone and some others. But uh, I'll tell you, I would appreciate having an account in the public square. That would certainly be nice. Fallout, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know what fallout we can expect. It's Musk's company now. It's his problem. And, uh, you know, we, we are seeing the evidence, the the really the proof of what we knew was going on at Twitter in terms of their communications with government, their censorship, uh, their election interference. It's its everything that we saw taking place. I mean, remember, much of this was not something that was ever hidden by Twitter. When they would ban people, when they would censor people, it was not something that was hidden. They would tell you, those accounts would disappear. You knew that accounts were shadow banned because you couldn't see their tweets. You'd go to search for their account and you couldn't find it. Twitter would say, oh, that's a glitch. We don't shadow ban people. Twitter repeatedly lied in front of Congress. We know that. Will those people be charged with lying in front of Congress the way that Roger Stone was charged with lying in front of Congress, even though Roger Stone, by all indication, didn't lie in front of Congress? Of course not. That's not how it works. Of course, Roger Stone didn't have a, you know, the, the benefit of being on the left, the institutional prowess of that, and he did, wasn't spending millions of dollars a year lobbying Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill the way that Twitter does. And so even Republican lawmakers who come out and pretend as though they're, they're so outraged by what Twitter did and promise to do things about it, well, they're really on the take. People like Jim Jordan from Ohio, Representative Jim Jordan, who was on House Oversight, who made such a big deal of, we're going to go after censorship. And yet he repeatedly voted against bills that didn't even deal with censorship, but would have just uh, put a hamper in Twitter's anti-competitive business practices. Just the, the smallest of antitrust actions where 
you know, for example, what would happen is that if you had an app that would compete with Twitter, and there have been a number of apps over the years that that stood some chance, it's a lot harder because around the time that Twitter and Facebook and uh, even Instagram came out, people would do an activity that you don't hear this term so much anymore called surfing the web. And they weren't just surfing the web for content. They're surfing the web for new platforms, new sites, new things to do. That is not done so much anymore. And so it was much easier to grow a site at that time, to grow a social media site at that time. People also don't really, for the most part, surf the app store. So the trap that new social media platforms get involved in is advertising, 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 buying audience, trying to get people involved. They end up with these siloed platforms like Truth Social or Parler, where they're just, you know, echo chambers of one side of the political discussion, and they don't really have anything besides politics on them. The closest thing that has even really ever had any kind of network effects has been a website called Stock Twits, which was a Twitter alternative purely for financial information, mostly for stocks. And there's a lot of connivery and fraud that goes on on that side and all of that, but it's the only thing that's really come close in terms of network effects and and platform and revenue and all of that. So that's the social media rundown. What I'd like to see more than more documents coming out is I'd like to see people uh, uncensored from the site. I'd like to see myself back on the site. I'd like to see Jack Berkman back, who was censored, by the way, for at the beginning of the pandemic, saying that there's likely to be food shortages of certain items. And then guess what? There were food shortages of certain items. Totally correct. Like many people who were banned for being correct on any number of points concerning the pandemic. They banned him for pandemic misinformation. Unbelievably. So I would like to see Ali Alexander unbanned. I'd like to see a lot of these, a lot of people brought back onto the site and and be given the right to respond. But I want to get into here talking just a, a little bit about some of what happened with the FTX debacle and, and what happens so, so many times when you have these Silicon Valley backed private companies that grow to enormous size that don't have necessarily good you know, the buzzword is corporate governance, oversight, policies, etc., incentives that can lead to a lot of damaging behavior within the economy. And we have seen this over and over again. You know, you, you've seen these companies take off with a certain virality that really does imitate the, uh, it really does imitate the uh, kind of internet bubble, except this time, Uh, Typically, we called them apps instead of websites, although not always. And that's kind of the only real difference. So, you know, Carvana is a good example. Carvana, the stock trades up to 350 when it's the only way you can get your hands on a car is through Carvana. And now the stock's at more like $5 and Chapter 11 is, you know, widely thought to be incoming. But sometimes these these companies can actually hurt the public. And a lot of times I think that Silicon Valley has something to do with that. And so I've been pondering, if you took, let's say, 100 generic Sam Bankman-Fried uh, analogs. So, you know, just, just, just go through the characteristics when it comes to this person. 
you know, before starting FTX, just the educational background, career background, age, age is a big one, life experience, socioeconomic upbringing and embedded network through his family, all of that. You take a hundred generic versions and you thrust them into the position with the kind of opportunity that he had of people throwing money at him, of people writing checks for $200 million after in a meeting to pitch those people, he's just sitting there playing video games, that sort of situation. How many of them would manage to keep the train on the tracks? I mean, the bottom line is that if you're going to run anything like that, you have to bring in so many outside experts that very quickly, it's not going to be your company. It's not going to be a company in your image, but maybe rightfully so. I mean, for one thing, you should know that you can't have an exchange blended with custody, blended with market making functions. Having all those functions stacked together has inherent conflicts of interest. Because they keep calling FTX an exchange. In the crypto world, that is what you call an exchange. It's just a colloquial term that they use. But it was really more like a brokerage firm because they're holding your money. And it should be separate from the exchange, but it's not. And throughout the crypto world, that's the case. Binance appears that it's going to collapse soon. So how many people you know, would, would manage to succeed? Yeah, he raised... Uh, Woody username in the chat uh, says, that's the username of the person, says he raised 420.69 million as a meme. That's correct. That's what he did. It's unbelievable. But how many people like that would manage to stay on the tracks? And if they're incapable of staying on the tracks, is it their job to keep themselves on the tracks? See, so like, let's run through this whole scenario here. Let's say it's like June of 2019, okay? Or July of 2019 or whenever. I'm overseas in Ukraine at the time. Just uh, looking into some things concerning Hunter Biden for a number of months. And so let's say it's mid-2019 and Alameda Research exists as some sort of hedge fund offshore, fine. Uh, They have qualified... Uh, individuals as their investors in small institutions, rich people that the parents know, people from around. And every single person who signs up signs a document that's in excess of 200 pages long called a private placement memoranda that lists out all of the risks. And those people sign up knowing that they can lose all of their money and then some actually. They could actually lose more than their money in some cases if the leverage were to blow up and they were put on the hook. Certain things to prevent that, but it's possible. Fine. Okay. He's a, he's then, let's say he's a 2019, let's say he is a, I don't know, 27 year old who's running a $10 billion fund. That's a very large fund for a 27 year old or or a 26 year old or 28 year old to run, but he's doing it. And then he announces, okay, I'm going to start up an exchange. He goes and he raises money from Silicon Valley. So let's say that Silicon Valley does their normal due diligence. And I actually have have had occasion to speak to people who have raised money from Sequoia. Uh, Adam Curry, who is on the No Agenda podcast, uh, which I've listened to for many years now, hard to believe, coming up on six years. I haven't listened to every single episode, but but close to it. I, I've done my best. Uh, it's got good kind of media deconstruction. They play a lot of clips and they talk about what the media narrative is. It's a different style from this show. I save you the clips and I'm able to cut the show down to 
an hour instead of three and a half hours by doing minimal clips. So you figure, you know, he's raised money from Sequoia. They're doing basically a, 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 you know, proctological exam on him to, to get this done. I mean, it's, it's, it's an incredible level of due diligence, forensic accounting, background checks, reference checks. That's even to get in the door of a place like Sequoia and get to pitch them. Different venture capital firms take different approaches. Uh, for instance, Jason Calacanis's firm uh, is a firm that is much more open to meetings. They just do a ton of short meetings and they hear from a lot of people. Different approach. Um, but normally there's a great deal of due diligence. And let's say that they do that level of due diligence here with Sam Bankman-Fried when he announces that he's running an exchange. Well, the first thing you might do is you might go ahead and do an audit of Alameda because that's what he's running now. So you might audit Alameda. You know, you might say, who is Alameda's fund administrator? Okay. So in the world of managing money, uh, which I did to some degree for some Chinese folks when I was 18, 19 years old, uh, trading bonds mostly, fixed income bonds, interest rates, you have something called the fund administrator. So whether you're doing managed accounts, whether you're doing an actual fund, you have somebody known as a fund administrator. And basically what the fund administrator does is they do the accounting and the reporting for the fund. And you don't want to do that stuff yourself, obviously, because number one, it's hard. If you don't have billions under management, you can't afford to hire people to do that anyway, or at least hundreds of millions. It's just too expensive. But number two, if you were to do your own reporting to the investors in the fund, one of the major issues of that is that you have all kinds of liability associated with, you know, if somebody gets, you know, one line item wrong on an Excel spreadsheet, or even if you're just transmitting what the brokerage firm tells you, because some brokerage firms have really high quality reporting, some don't, but some do like Interactive Brokers does, for example, then, you know, you're, you could be on the hook for, you know, misrepresenting the returns, et cetera, et cetera. So what you have is a fund administrator that plugs directly into the fund uh, through the custody, through the brokerage firm, through the prime broker, whoever it happens to be, they're plugged in directly to the brokerage firm. They're not taking data from you. They're not showing up at your offices and taking data from you. They plug in directly to the brokerage firm, directly to the bank, directly to the prime broker, however it's worked out in terms of custody, and they handle that. And you have, you know, you have fund administrators all the way down to the, really the mid-tier, who are very credible. You know, I mean, to 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 be a, a fund administrator that is endorsed by some of these brokerage firms, it, it takes an incredible amount of, of due diligence into those fund administrators. And sometimes you even want two. And then you have a CPA firm that will reconcile the reports to the extent they need to be reconciled from the two. That is a top four. So why didn't they audit that? You know, when they ask Sam Bankman-Fried if they're doing any level of due diligence, who's your CFO? Who's your chief compliance officer. Because if you get into the financial business, especially to the degree that you're running a brokerage firm, it's not a matter of if you're investigated by regulators. It is not. And if you're running a brokerage firm, it's not even a matter of when you're investigated. It's a matter of you are under constant investigation and constant oversight. And you 
always need lawyers to deal with it on a constant, ongoing basis. So when they ask him what's you know your, your situation there, they don't have an answer. So you have Kevin O'Leary, who is famous now for saying that both of Sam Bankman-Fried's parents are compliance lawyers. Well, it turns out there's no evidence of that, that, there were, that they were ever compliance lawyers. Uh, they were tax law professors, as I've said before on the show, involved in the kind of obscure, abstract considerations of the morality of certain tax policies. Okay, so kind of political, uh, the political areas of tax law, not the nuts and bolts, not the finer points. In fact, there's a video of Sam Bankman-Fried's father testifying about hedge fund regulation concerning the carried interest loophole back in 2008 on C-SPAN. And the father is a very bizarre person, as you saw uh, on the show before, in terms of the way he speaks. You see how Sam Bankman-Fried ended up the way he did. So any level of due diligence would have discovered this. Now, if you are these VCs, then you got a couple options. Number one, you just say no. But number two, if you still really like the idea of the investment, you just say, look, we're Sequoia. We are uh, Kleiner Perkins. We are uh, Andreessen Horowitz or what have you. Uh, whatever big time VC firm that has billions of dollars and lots of network and resources. And you say, look, we're going to plug you in with these guys. We're going to plug you in with those guys. We have to get the books straightened out here. In fact, I would say that's pretty routine because when you talk about a startup, most of the time at a minimum, the startup starts off as an LLC, has to be reorganized into a C-Corp. And almost always they don't have really clean books when they first start off. And you have to figure that out to, to get things onto the tracks now that you're giving them a whole bunch of money to the extent it has to be accounted and payroll taxes and all that. So any of that could have discovered this, slowed this down. And these people owed a duty to their investors, of course, as a, a fiduciary duty to their investors. They owed a duty to themselves. But I would argue when, you, when you're writing checks that are, you know, equivalent to weapons of mass destruction in terms of their size and your lending credibility of your firm, which you know you're doing if you're a Sequoia, et cetera, no matter what you say in terms of this is not an endorsement, blah, blah, blah. That's what the effect of it is. And then a lot of the times these VCs make an investment, then they go and they do what's called lead the next round. So then they're immediately going out as the VC firm and raising the next round of money from other VC firms to try to pump up on paper the valuation of the company. And to give it more money to grow. So they owed a duty to, to, to do this, to execute basic levels of due diligence. I guarantee you that in Sequoia's own PPMs to their limited partners and their funds, their investors, in other words, I guarantee you that there were clauses concerning the types of due diligence that they do. I guarantee you that. So it's just incredible. And, and what I would say here is that when I look at this entire thing, I don't, I'm not excusing any of Sam Bankman-Fried's conduct. Obviously, there came a point in which he committed to executing a fraudulent scheme. Whether it was right at the beginning of FTX as a bailout of the hedge fund or whatever the case might have been, you know, there came a point where that started to happen. I still have seen no evidence that the hedge fund ever did this so-called kimchi arbitrage. That doesn't make sense to me. I've seen no evidence that that ever happened. You would think that that would be publicly available on various blockchains, but I, I've seen nothing that, that suggests they ever did that. So, you, you know, the, 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 the VCs 
owe the public something there. And, and there's another VC practice that I have commented on in the last week that I think is is another problem. And it's this idea that they're just not, you know, it's, it's this whole concept of startups not paying the founders. And it's particularly interesting when you look at what happened in that Trump organization case up in New York, where they say, well, Alan Weisselberg paid employees with perks rather than compensation. And as a result of doing that, avoided paying certain payroll taxes if he had just paid cash compensation. And he pleads to a felony. Trump organizations found guilty. And it's like, well, what about all these what about all these uh, tech CEOs like Steve Jobs famously did this when he was at Apple, who pay themselves a salary of one dollar and make all of their money through stock options? Are they avoiding taxes? Are they avoiding uh, payroll taxes, income taxes? Of course they are. Everyone knows that. I mean, what concerned local New York Manhattan authorities was, you know, I guess certain taxes owed to the city of New York in, in that case, and perhaps the state of New York, I, I, I believe. But this whole thing about not paying people is, is, is really screwing, has a number of problems. When I would say when you have a startup that is generating tens of millions of dollars in revenue or hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, um, millions of dollars in profit. Now, like I can't even imagine a company that's generating hundreds of millions in revenue and no profit or hundreds of millions in, in or, or even sometimes billions in revenue, no profit. But they do exist. A lot of them in Silicon Valley. It's pretty famous. I mean, Amazon didn't make money for 20 years, effectively, or longer. I think 21 years before they turned a profit. But w- when you reach that point, I think that the the people that have started that company, the founders, or the, to the extent that they're executives running the company, the executives running that company, they should probably be paid a salary somewhere in the range of one to two million dollars, a cash salary. I mean, you think about, for, for instance, flying on a plane. Um, what if... You had United Airlines say, we don't pay our pilots, but don't worry, they have stock options. So they're incentivized to do a good job because if they don't, their stock options will be worthless. Would you want to fly on that airline? Would you want to fly on an airline where they said, we don't pay the pilots or they take a salary of $1 a year, but don't worry, they've got stock options. I would not want to fly on that airline. I'll tell you that. Or... uh, how about having a uh, a what if your life was on the line? You were you were wrongly accused of a crime. You were wrongly accused of murder, let's say. And your defense attorney, uh, you just gave him no money to do the case, and uh, you said, "Don't worry, here's some stock options in my company that will do hugely well if I survive this case." Would you want your defense attorney working in that fashion? No, you wouldn't. And there's this argument that, well, it aligns interests and it creates interest alignment. Fine. I'm not against stock options at all. But I think there ought to be cash compensation because there's a couple issues with just not paying these people. The first issue is you're, you're now dealing with people running these companies who are cash broke in many cases. Some of them come from money. Some of them made money and other things. and they're, But a lot of times they poured all their money into equity investment in the company to, to building the company. So now they're cash broke. Now, in most of this country, but particularly in places like Silicon Valley, San Francisco, these are awfully expensive places, New York City. 
you're not going to last very long if you're cash broke. You're going to be what we call homeless. So they aren't really going to exist cash broke. What's going to happen? Well, what's going to happen is they're going to find a less than perfectly ethical CFO who is going to basically welcome them into the world of what is called creative accounting. And that CFO or that, you know, uh, deputy CFO or whoever they bring in at whatever level or chief counsel maybe is going to maneuver ways of saying, well, you know, I think what we could do is you could send in fake receipts for this or that and then you use that money to pay your rent or whatever they jigger together so that this person can, you know, keep a roof over their heads. And yeah, maybe they're worth $100 million on paper, but they're cash broke. And good luck trying to, you know, get loans against private company stock. It's eh, very difficult, very difficult in all but a few cases. And then that takes even money to go through that process. So they're going to bring in that kind of person. And if that kind of person's going to do that for them, he's going to do it for other people. Maybe he'll do other things on the books. I've never hired a CFO, but I've hired, you know, we, we have at the lobbying firm somebody who does the books, of course. I guess she's our CFO, but we don't call her that. You don't want anything besides a perfectly honest, perfectly by the book CFO, because if they'll do something that is in the realm of creative for you, they'll just as quickly do something creative for themselves or for some other person or for God knows what reason to cover up embezzlement. You don't want that. In the world of accounting, in the world of auditing, you really, really, really want a by the books person. It is for your own good. You, 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 you may think you're getting some kind of short term benefit from having somebody like that, but you, you, whatever short term benefit you you think you're getting will be ultimately a mistake. It'll be outweighed. And much wiser people than me have told me that, and and I can see why it's true. Thankfully, I haven't had to ever really learn it the hard way. Um, so then they're going to bring in creative accountants. You know, the other thing that's going to happen is if they're not being paid any kind of salary, if there's something that might lead to them saying, you know, there's going to be a down round here or, you know, so in other words, we're going to have to raise a lower valuation. The market conditions have changed or, you know, we're going to have to report a bad quarter here. We just, you know, this project didn't work out as well as we thought. They're going to be, you know, less than incentivized, let's say, to be perfectly honest with the public about that. Uh, because the only thing they have in it is, are stock options now and they need them to go up in value. So at least they can you know, exercise something and get some cash perhaps. They're, they'll be more likely to quit. I just think there are, there are all kinds of problems that present by saying we're going we're gonna to have a billion dollar portfolio asset or a multi-hundred dollar portfolio asset. And we're going to have the people running it not be paid in cash. I mean, yeah, stock options. I think that's all great, but I think cash salaries are in order. And yes, I think they should be $1 million or $2 million. And then you have these VCs say, well, you know, then they're going to be distracted with the trappings of wealth. It's like, well, if these people were focused enough to raise $100 million bucks from you or raise $10 million from you, I don't think that the fact that they can now, you know, afford a car is going to distract them. You know what would probably distract them more is them driving a junkie car that 
breaks down constantly or, or what have you. I mean, that's going to be more of a distraction or them uh, thinking about who are they going to beg, borrow or steal from in order to pay their rent. That's going to be a distraction. Making a million dollars a year is the opposite of a distraction. It's the opposite of a distraction. You know, the looming doom of, of only being paid by stock options is a distraction. And that's why when you talk about honest professional services, uh, what they call honest services under the law, under federal law, like lawyers and doctors and CPAs, people that are in a position of um, public trust in some sense, these kind of professionals, there are even particular ethical rules about this. You know, like you cannot pay your CPA on contingency because then they're going to have adverse sort of incentives to to cheat on your taxes, whether you even know it or not, so that they're paid more. And of course, there's the underlying fact that if they do a really good job, then you, you probably will pay them more next time or pay them a bonus. There's nothing wrong with that, but you can't have them work on contingency because you can't have them starving unless they go the extra mile in a way that, say, is not good. You know, like, for for instance, as a, as a registered lobbyist myself, there are certain instances where, where I cannot, and many instances where I cannot, as a registered lobbyist, work on a contingency basis. You know, people will say, hey, uh, you know, I want you to help us go after this contract at DOD, um, and I want to pay you nothing up front and do a contingency. And we don't do that because, first of all, you'll get people with junky products that are just fishing for anything that don't have any skin in the game. But number two, it's not, in many cases, it's not legal. It's not allowed. Because then what am I going to do as a lobbyist if I'm paid nothing and 50 hours down the tubes if I, if I don't get the contract versus only get paid if I get it? So there's a lot of situations like this. It's a major problem. It's an, it's an ethical failing. And so they should be paying these people a top 1% salary. It's utterly foolish not to. And uh, it, and it sets up really dangerous incentives. People should not, you know, these VCs should not be allowed to have or, or should not allow. I mean, it's not going to be rules on this, but they, they should not allow people who are cash broke. Or just cash unpaid to be running these assets. It's it, it is it is totally foolish. Somebody commented on Telegram. They said, yeah, VCs treat us. I guess he's been raising money from VCs. They treat us like game show contestants. It's like some sick version of Shark Tank and it's considered good. You know, like, oh, if they're really hungry, they're going to do better. It's like, no, I don't know. I've never met somebody who performed better when they were starving than not starving. Okay. Like, yeah, there's the back against the wall. There's the grit. There's all that. But nobody runs the race better when they're actually starving. Okay. Uh, Looking here in the chat here before we move on. Uh, even if they're compliance lawyers, why would it even matter to O'Leary? It's such a vague term considering how every sector now has its own headaches of compliance. Food, medicine, finance, cosmetics. Yeah, exactly. You know, exactly. And and the other part is the other part is if your parents like were compliance lawyers, let's say in finance, um, you know, the, the issue or they were SEC lawyers or they were the head of the SEC. The, the, the issue with that then becomes if they haven't been practicing, if they've been professors for 10 years, the likelihood that they're up on the regulations, which are almost constantly changing. They finally slowed down the pace at which they were changing regulations. But now that might pick back up that you're not going to be valid and up to speed anyway. So that's the other problem. Um, 
it's just kind of kind of wild. Um, just looking here at the chats here before we before we keep going. Interview with a. Uh, um, John F says, Jacob, I recommend a video on YouTube titled Interview with a Modern. That's this guy. Interview with a Modern Psychopath. This guy made this documentary about me two part. It's got just endless misinformation. Of course, it's not. I don't even think it's fair to call it a documentary. It did get like a million and a half views. So, I mean, I congratulate him on that. Uh, and then, you know, months later, he wanted to interview me. And I would recommend you just watch this interview because I think it makes short work of this guy's claims. Um, I really think that I intellectually outmatched this character. I think that was sometime, it was sometime, sometime after July of last year, but I don't know exactly when that Oki character, that's his name. I don't know what his, if that's his real name or what his real name is. Um, when your company is appealingly printing money in the talk of the Valley, you skip the process and the hardest phases of due diligence. That's true. Cause people are racing. They don't want to miss out. Like imagine if you missed out on Google, you know? how you'd feel if you missed out on the Google investment. It only takes one or two or three of those, you know, sometimes only one to make your whole career. Um, it's really easy to criticize in hindsight, but probably many investments they made in a similar matter made huge returns. Some, sure. But I just think here, I, I don't even think you need to do like the, the, the you know, the, the, the rectal examination level due diligence here. To do these, to do these examine to, to do these investments, I think just basics, just real basics. I mean, you don't need to audit the person's entire life. I don't think that's important. I don't think that's important at all. Uh, to to make an investment of this sort, what's the business? Is the person running it halfway competent? There's none of that here. I was shocked when I learned when I found out Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny only made 300 400k annually. Yeah, and I think that was total I think. I think it was even less than that if I recall. Yeah, they didn't enrich themselves certainly from that whole thing. I mean, Elizabeth Holmes did not enrich herself. She did not enrich herself with Theranos. That's one thing that's clear. She did not personally enrich herself. She didn't buy her family a bunch of houses and things like that. Not at all. Um she got an enhancement because it had to do with health care products, which is uh, within the within the federal sentencing guidelines. Healthcare products adds like five points. It's a point system uh, that goes over that. Adam Neumann did this quite well. He took out loans against his equity. I suspect SBF did that too, which is now why his parents got 121 million. Yeah, that and like he wrote himself loans using customer funds, where he signs both sides of the promissory note. All that stuff. Most stock options expire worthless, and these employees know this. And sometimes, even the executives who can project one year into the future whether the company will be there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, my grandmother, years ago, during the internet boom, was working at the time at Qualcomm. And it wasn't just the internet boom, it was a tech boom. Qualcomm wasn't an internet company. They were a tech co- They still are a tech company. They High tech. You know, processors, chips military technology at the wazoo. Some of the stories my grandmother told me about being an engineer at, at Qualcomm when the generals would come down to, to Qualcomm headquarters there and in uh, San Diego and I guess Escondido technically and, and would uh, 
want to see their cutting edge DARPA level stuff and reading a reading the time off of a general's watch with a satellite when he sets it on the hood of a car. That was something. And that was in the early 90s they could do that. So, you know, they invented the truck tracking tech, all of that stuff. Uh, but she had a bunch of stock options that expired worthless when tech got wiped out. I mean, she was worth seven, eight million bucks on paper and it would just all went poof. It was gone. Um, Jacob, what do you think about the impending? It's a, it's a shame it's gone, but it just didn't work out. What do you think about the impending ATF rule that's expected to ban or severely regulate AR pistol braces? Well, you know, here's what I think about that rule that's that's set to ban pistol braces. Um, first of all, I think that a lot of people are getting ahead of their skis based upon a couple of leaked documents. Okay. If the ATF is going to, in fact, pass that rule, let them pass the rule, okay? You let them pass the rule if they're going to do that, all right? Second of all, and this isn't legal advice, of course, but when it comes to if you had, let's say, an AR pistol, something with a pistol brace, SIG MCX, AK, whatever, something with a brace on it, you have to imagine... Well, is the ATF going to come to your door and check to see if you have a brace? And if they did, it it would have to be a no-knock warrant, right? Because if you did see an ATF agent at the door, you could reach in quickly and simply remove the pistol brace, couldn't you? And just have a buffer tube. You could do that. Uh, So, you know, some of them attach differently with these like, you know, they screw in or something on certain other things, but for the most part, they, they slide over a buffer tube. And so it's not something that, I mean, I guess if you were randomly approached at a range about a brace. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't think it's something to panic too much about. Of course it would be a, it would be a negative thing. You know, the other thing that I, I don't do here, of course, I'm the most pro second amendment person there is that you'll ever run into but I also am not a fan of playing these nomenclature games, these semantic games that the gun people will claim of like, this is for disabled persons to strap it to their wrist. Okay, maybe some people use a pistol brace that way. But let's just be frank here. A pistol brace is just a, you know, less functional stock that's kind of wobbly and soft depending on how it's set up and which version it is and what have you. It's just a slightly less optimal stock. And that's really what it is. And like, let's just be frank about these things. Like, you know, I I just don't feel the need to, to play the spin game here and insult everybody's intelligence about what these things really are and pretend that it's no, it's, it's, it's people that had their arm chopped off in an accident and they need this to fire their AR with one hand. Okay. All right. I mean, come on. So I don't feel the need to play those games. Just like I don't feel the need to say, you know, uh, with people that uh, it like the, the, the claiming everything's not an assault rifle game is just kind of wild, too. It's like, this is not an assault rifle. It's a modern sporting rifle. Okay. Got it. And fair enough. But that game is, it, is a trap in my view. It's like calling it critical race theory. Like you're already seeding the point to the left by using their term. 
And so by by getting into an argument that's not an assault rifle, you've already seeded the fact that you say no civilian should be able to own an assault rifle, meaning a select fire capability. I think that they should be able to own an assault rifle. I think that they should. So you've already seeded that point by saying, oh, it's not an assault rifle. It would, no, I would, I mean, of course, if it were, I would say that would be terrible. Well, no, of course, Americans should be able to own those too. And by the way, you can, it's that, that's the whole joke about ATF regulations. It's like short-barreled rifles are so evil. They're so evil and so dangerous that no one should be able to have them unless you pay us $200 and then we send you a little stamp. Or, you know, suppressors are just so dangerous. Silencers are, they're, 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 which by the way, it, there's another one. They, people say it's not a silencer. Well, yes, it is. Silencer is in fact a correct term for suppressor. Do silencers actually make things silent like you see in the movies and on TV? No. Like, in fact, I watched an episode of that show on CBS, CBS show SEAL Team and they're shooting, you know, 10.3 inch HK 416s with AAC suppressors. And it sounds like a BB gun going off, like an air, like an airsoft gun. Okay. It doesn't sound like that in real life, but in any event, I don't play the nomenclature games, the spin games, uh, that a lot of the people in the second amendment community play. And so, um, you know, it's just not my thing to, to stand around and, and, and do all of that. Um, so it's just not what I, what I do. Um, now, so there's that leaked document, may be banned, may not be. I, I'm not getting ahead of my skis on it, and I'm not staying up at night. And, um, you know, I, I just, and I'm not telling you to as far as that stuff goes, and I, it's not even relevant to me. So, I, you know, it's not relevant to me. And um, so I, I just, you know, it's not something that, that I, I just wait and see is what I'd say. Yeah, silencer is the name on the original patent. That's right. It is as legitimate a name for it as, as any other name. So anyway, yeah, I don't know about that. We'll see what these documents actually add up to, whether they were just draft documents, whether they're actually going to be implemented, what the timeline's going to be. We just don't know yet. And there's a lot of people that are kind of farming the issue for views on YouTube, you know, going into when this happens, then do this, and that's going to happen. And there's just not a lot of certainty yet. So and of course, like any of these things, there's ongoing litigation, ongoing lawsuits. Half of them get thrown out. An Oregon judge already threw out their magazine restriction. Even California has not been able to keep a magazine restriction in place. It keeps getting thrown out. Then it gets stayed. Then it gets brought back. So effectively, people in California can possess now, you know, essentially high capacity magazines. And the presumption is they were bought during a certain date and time. So in any event, we'll we'll. I guess, cover that more if we have some, some solid news on it. Uh, question for later. What, what are your thoughts on the 200 K reparation check? Your home state is considering sounds unlikely, but California is, uh, yeah, I, you know, we'll see about that reparation thing in California. I don't know. Um, SBF could have probably retired, brought an expert accountant, clear up the business, a year ago, maybe that would have saved his company, but he still would be a billionaire and free. Yeah, you know, it's it's tough. And it's like, again, when you have somebody with his upbringing and they haven't been through a lot of fire and fury and, and different things, 
it's just they don't have the mental sturdiness to deal with something like that. And, and I mean, I was investigated by the SEC when I was 18, 19 years old. I had just turned 19. They put me under oath for a total of 19 hours over two different days. And they gave me a big seal of approval after doing a bunch of forensic accounting of my firm, which was, you know, the investigation probably launched because I was a Trump supporter. I don't know. But they found no wrongdoing whatsoever. Okay, speaking of which, Trump's offering of uh, $4.5 million of NFTs, surprisingly to me, uh, sold out within the first 24 hours. Uh, but people quickly found out that the images, uh, like the pilot suit, you know, th- these weren't originally drawn. They were cropped and pasted together, different things. Well, uh, they were not licensed. They see the watermarks here from the stock image site. And um, it's just pretty, pretty unbelievable that they wouldn't just pay. I mean, some of these stock images you get for 10 bucks with an unlimited license, depending on where you go. Some are more expensive. Why not just pay the, at most, it would be like $800 for some of these stock images for the unlimited license. Like most things in Trump world these days, it's uh, what we call amateur hour like the attorneys he hires to deal with the special counsel investigation and all of that. By the way, I I haven't seen a lot of leaks out of this special counsel investigation. Has this special counsel uh, investigator, this Jack Smith, has he moved back to the U.S. yet? What's going on with that? Very strange. Um, Maybe he'll just let his first things be indictments like Mueller did, and then he'll start leaking. Who knows? I want to talk to you. There's a big, big article out in the New York Times kind of, uh, it was either late last week or over the weekend, talking about some of the failings of uh, you know, Putin's invasion of Ukraine. This article in the New York Times was clearly based on a lot of briefings and sort of, sort of direct briefings, not leaks even necessarily, but briefings from CIA and DOD, although they don't say that. And so you have to bear in mind a lot of this article, a lot of the claims made in the article, we have to take with a grain of salt. Some of them undoubtedly are completely and utterly factually correct. But others certainly are half-truths or just totally made-up things uh, aimed at being a psyop because a story like this has a lot of value as a psychological operation in terms of sort of deteriorating, let's say, the confidence within the Russian command or uh, deteriorating different different parts of people's confidence, uh, emboldening Ukrainians doing different things psychologically. Uh, There are entire enormous divisions within the military that does this. The other thing that I have to continue to warn about, and it is something that I first reported on this show, I believe as early as March or April of last year, is that we have to remember here, U.S. forces are on the ground in Ukraine. Okay? Um, U.S. military service members are on the ground in Ukraine. There are obviously you know, various contractors, both intelligence and DOD contractors there. And some of them have been killed. State Department contractors, few of them have been killed, uh, both working for CIA, DOD um, over there. There are those people. And, you know, generally we don't care so much about those people because they're paid very well and they're not wearing the flag and they're kind of, you know, I care about them. I do. Maybe I just, because I've known a, a number of them, but they're not cared about so much in terms of official diplomacy, obviously, for, for the purposes of of what might happen there. But, you know, the the sustainment division of the army has been driving in product from Poland uh, into Ukraine. I think it's the second sustainment battalion of the army. They're the logistics guys. They move they move product. And that's a you know worthy task, by the way, within the military. They don't get a lot of credit. But without logistics, you don't have much of a war, you don't have much of an army. 
they've been there. Uh, you've had uh, Naval Naval Special Warfare Development Group, uh, Gold Squadron and Gray Squadron there uh, in the region doing uh, various Marine operations uh, in Ukraine. I'm not saying anything that is, you know, classified or or unknown, really, at this point. You have had um, various uh, Army Special Mission units there. You have had uh, Green Berets there training, which is why the Ukrainians have, in some cases, managed to operate very complicated weapon systems, uh, sort of more complicated tactics because they were trained by people that that's what they do. That's what the Green Berets do. And and these people have taken to it much better than, say, the Afghan army or different you know forces in uh, Central America or in the Philippines or in Southeast Asia. So they've taken to the training quite well. Um, recently, I learned that MARSOC is there. That's the Marine Special Operation Command. Marine Corps has their own. They're newer, of course, in the world of SOCOM and JSOC. Uh, but they are there, I have learned. Um, so that's all happening there. Um, there have been limited operations of TF-160. These are the night stalkers. These are the, you know, most elite helicopter pilots, but they also have fixed wing, believe it or not. The army does operate some fixed wing reconnaissance and different things that, that go on. There's uh, air force 24th STS. Uh, these are the air forces tier one unit. Obviously there's been drones that have been flown and things like this. So, you got to understand, there's a lot of Americans on the ground there, okay? There's like, you know, north of 3,000 is at last count what I've received. And then, of course, there's Americans standing by in neighboring countries, in Poland, uh, especially in Germany. Germany, not exactly neighboring, but in Hungary. So that's also taking place. And, 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 it's, and it's something that, like I said, I think I was the first person to report Unfortunately, not able to report with a huge megaphone on Twitter, but uh, but on Telegram. And so, you know, pray for the troops, whatever whatever your persuasion is on all of this. I think that's uh, something we can do because this is a this could shape up to be a huge fiasco. And this person says there are pics of Ukrainians with SIG MCX spears. Yeah, that's because the spear they make a version that fires seven six two by thirty nine. They've got a lot of seven six two thirty nine in their reserves, and so it's like a much more accurate AK. It's not to say you can't have an accurate AK, but um, in terms of just gun to gun to gun, if something's been in storage for God knows how long and maybe it's rusted or maybe it's not or who knows, um, you know, it's a more accurate AK basically. Yeah, there's MCX Spears. I've seen a lot of uh, Patriot Ordnance Factory rifles. They're made down in Arizona. Never officially had a Pentagon contract, but they're being bought up and sent over there. So anyway, we, we won't go too far into the minutiae here, but let's talk about this article and what's really happening. Uh, let's talk about what's going on here. So here are a couple of the takeaways from the article I read here. It says, uh, this is, and I quote, the Russian military, despite Western assumptions about its prowess, was severely compromised, gutted by years of theft. Hundreds of billions of dollars had been devoted to modernizing the armed forces under Mr. Putin, but corruption scandals ensnared thousands of officers. One military contractor described frantically hanging enormous patriotic banners to hide the decrepit conditions at a major Russian tank base, hoping to fool a delegation of top brass. The visitors were even prevented from going inside to use the bathroom, he said, lest they discover the ruse. So 
you know, there you go. And, and people forget what a poor country Russia is. Russia is a very poor country. Yes, there are the, the, the rich people in, in Moscow that have real jobs and real opportunity. I'm excusing the oligarchs here, just people that are well off. But most of that country is incredibly poor. I mean, a, a poor person in Russia, you told them what a poor person is in America, they wouldn't even be able to conceive of such a thing. They'd say, that's poor to you? They have how many television sets? They have iPhones? What? The government gives them the iPhone for free? And the service for free? What? I mean, they'd be amazed. Now, the other part about this is, of course, America is very corrupt too, but it's it's corrupt in a more institutionalized, buttoned up, classy fashion. You know, it's it's fundraisers, it's lobbyists, it's um, it's incentive structures, it's board seats, uh, but it isn't petty corruption. And America's sort of institutionalized corruption leaves you with a much better military at the end of the day than does the kind of petty corruption that exists in Russia. Because, you know, there's still products to be made. There's still things that come out of it. You know, you, you, you have an F-35 fighter, even if you pay way too much for it. In fact, Russia can get the cost and things like that down. We can't. So there's upsides and downsides. But in terms of things like a tank base, yeah, it can be really, really bad in a place like Russia. Um, I continue reading here. It says, once the invasion began, Russia squandered its dominance over Ukraine through a parade of blunders. See, like even this term, a parade of blunders, that's not a term that, like that's figurative language, right? Think about this. This is the New York Times through a parade of blunders. The way that you would say this is a series of blunders, not a parade a parade is something where people march in line. It's a militaristic thing. Parade, using that term here, is, is a term of art, and it's done for a reason. A parade of blunders versus a series of mishaps. The more journalistic, dry term would be a series of mishaps and mistakes. A series of mishaps and miscalculations. A series of miscalculations and failures. Not a parade of blunders. It relied on old maps and bad intelligence to fire its missiles, leaving Ukrainian air defenses surprisingly intact, ready to defend the country. Russia's vaunted hacking squads tried and failed to win what some officials called the first big test of cyber weapons and actual warfare. Russian soldiers, many shocked they were going to war, used their cell phones to call home, allowing Ukrainians to track them and pick off uh, in large numbers. By the way, that's another division out there called um, called uh, SOT A S O T dash A. For those of you who are googling this, SOT A, uh, part of the army that does a lot of the electronic surveillance, electronic warfare. They're also there. Uh, so a lot of this stuff is is going on. It wasn't really necessarily in most cases the Ukrainians. Um, it was. Not that they couldn't, they've got some good cyber folks, but it was a lot of Americans uh, commandeering the cell you know, towers and putting up their own cell towers and all of that. Uh, and Russia's armed forces were so stodgy and sclerotic that they did not adapt. See, again, stodgy and sclerotic, stodgy and sclerotic. They're using, um, you know, they're, they're using alliteration here. Sclerotic, like, you know, sclerosis. I mean, just the terms here. They say a lot about the credibility of this piece. 
While their planes were being shot down, many Russian pilots flew as if they faced no danger, almost like they were in an air show. Again, you're, you're using similes. It's like the, the use of figurative language here is just over the top for a journalistic piece. Now, if it was a column, if it was an opinion column, then this would be more appropriate. But it's not. It's, it's very carefully veiled as it being a factual piece. There's a lot to, to take from that in terms of what we make of, this, of these reports. It says in interviews, members of the brigade said some of them had barely fired a gun before and described having almost no bullets anyway, let alone air cover or artillery. Yeah, this seems to be true. Uh, the role of you know coordinating air power to work in concert with ground forces, a very important task, largely did not seem to exist on, on either side. And we had ridiculous stories about like the ghost of Kiev and the ridiculous things. And Adam Kinzinger retweeting the fake photo of Sam Hyde piloting the plane and saying it, he's a hero. And I mean, all of that. But it, they really could not do advanced maneuvers with air power uh, with Russian planes. You know, close air support, uh, move and maneuver. That, that was not happening very well. They've managed to do decently well choreographed maneuver warfare, albeit at much greater costs and in much more time than they would have liked, but they were not able to do the JTAC function of coordinating that this is something that takes a lot of training, a lot of skill. I mean, you're basically like an air traffic controller while being shot at, while bombs are going off. It's it's very difficult to do. And from the ground, not from a tower. I mean, it's it's incredible the things that JTAC, some of the stories you hear with from JTACs fighting the caliphate and different things in, in war. Not really able to do that very well. It says here, Russian invasion plans obtained by the New York Times. So do you think the Russian invasion plans were obtained by the New York Times? Or do you think they were obtained by the CIA, the DIA, the DOD, and given to the New York Times? Obviously, the latter. The New York Times, I mean, I don't even think, does the New York Times even have embedded journalists with Ukrainian forces? Does CNN have embeds with Ukrainian forces? I don't see them lately. I haven't seen anything like that. Where's Richard Engel embedded with the forces on the ground? Nothing. They just, they just copy PSYOPs from Twitter and post it or just post whatever the DOD and CIA tell them to post. Uh, show that, But it says here, the, the Russian invasion plans obtained by the New York Times, again, not, uh, show the military expected to sprint hundreds of miles across Ukraine and triumph within days. Officers were told to pack their dress uniforms and medals in anticipation of military parades in the Ukrainian capital, Kiev which it is called uh, Kiev. I'm not calling it Kiev. I've spent months in Ukraine, and I've never heard anyone in Ukraine call it Kiev. Maybe you have. I, I didn't. Maybe they were just saying it differently to me because I'm an American. I don't know. I'm not calling it Kiev. I'm not doing what, uh, the, the, what CNN tells me to do in terms of this pronunciation. It says your parade of blunders, you know, so old maps, bad intel. I don't understand this. You know, Russia has a spy satellite program. Why couldn't they get updated satellite imagery of Ukraine? Was it just too cloudy? It was awfully cloudy in the early days of the war. It was awfully cloudy. I mean, could they not do high altitude drones? Uh, Russia, I guess... They don't have anything quite like the, you know, U-2 spy plane. They don't have something really exactly like that, which we still operate based out of Sacramento, the air base up there, Sacramento area. Um, but they do have planes that can fly pretty high. 
So I, I don't know about this bad maps thing. I, I, I don't know. Uh, far less useful than expected hacker squads. Okay. Soldiers phoning home with cells, revealing positions. I, that I completely believe, you know, not to mention posting on TikTok, posting things. I saw a, a, a picture of a Marine boot camp recently out of Camp Pendleton. I think the picture is real where they go on a cell phone break a couple times a day to go mess around on their cell phones during boot camp and watch TikTok or do whatever. If you're doing military operations, uh, I do not think that you can have cell phones with you. I mean, if you're going up against any kind of a sophisticated adversary, that is because they'll give you away. Even if you're not, you know, the sophisticated adversary might help them and by, by revealing your position. I, I just don't see how you can allow cell phones. I mean, it's just, I, it seems crazy, but they did. And I know the U.S. military's had problems with that too. Uh, while their planes were being shot down, many Russian pilots flew as if they faced no danger, almost like they were at an air show. We said that before. Again, there's kind of similes and all of that. It says here, many of his fighters, this is Putin, are commanded by people who are not even part of the military, like his former bodyguard, leader of Chechnya, and a mercenary boss who has provided, who has provided catering for Kremlin events. Okay. Uh, Russian soldiers were stunned when the orders came to invade on February 23rd. They were at their camp celebrating the Defender of the Fatherhood Fatherland holiday uh, when their commander approached. Tomorrow you are going to Ukraine to F some shit up. Uh, there was no further explanation. Okay. I, and again, we don't know who who is saying that to whom exactly when they when they say that. It's not it's not really clear. It says here some Russian troops uh, panicked and even resorted to self-sabotage. One Pentagon intelligence report, so here you see they're kind of revealing where this information is coming from. One Pentagon intelligence report said that Russian military drivers were poking holes in their gas tanks, disabling their own vehicles to avoid going to battle. The commander of a Ukrainian tank repair depot said some 30 Russian T-80 tanks in seemingly perfect condition were taken and delivered to him at the beginning of the war. When his mechanics inspected, they found that they had had sand poured in the fuel tanks, making them inoperable. So if they were taken, but they were inoperable, what were they put on a train? Were they dragged in by another tank? I don't know. How, how were they taken if they were inoperable and had sand in them? I mean, maybe they were. Maybe they were just left behind and then they're ours now. I, I don't know. It just was kind of strange. Um, it says here, Russia is good at rockets, yet came to rely on battered and experienced troops after months of tactics that more closely resemble 1917 than 1922. Commanders sent waves of troops into the range of heavy artillery, eking out a few yards of territory at, a griev at grievous tolls. Yeah, well, I have seen that, especially lately. I've seen a lot more of this trench warfare. Have you seen this out of Ukraine in the videos of just people in trenches, clearing trenches? It looks like 1917. Or, or 1914 or 15 in, in World War I. I mean, it's, it's, it's very crazy. And anytime you see the tactics receding like that, I do wonder if what you have is a, is an, is a sort of immeasurable uh, technological mismatch in some way. And something tells me that it may have something to do with with artificial intelligence. There, there seems to be AI that's playing a role in this Russian-Ukrainian war in very strange ways 
that we can't even quite imagine. And that that is, it's causing some kind of mismatch here that's giving us this bizarre outcome where people are ending up back in trenches in a stalemate. Like you look at World War One and you say, why was there such a unbelievable stalemate in World War One? And the best explanation that I've been able to find and really come up with on my own, frankly, in examining World War One pretty closely, is that you see, you have something like this here. Uh, this is this is in uh, Anytone eight seventy eight radio. Uh, it is it is dual band. In fact, it's tri-band if you switch the setting, but it's only got low power in the 220 megahertz range. Uh, it's dual band. It can store thousands of channels. Uh, it is capable of, you see it says Predator DC. It's capable of, when it boots up, it is capable of AES 256-bit encryption. Um, it is fully digital under the DMR, Digital Mobile Radio Protocol. So you can do AES 256 encryption, uh, you can do a whole host of things with this. We've got some Hytera radios that I think are even better. They're, they're not quite as versatile, but you have um, like the Hytera P982. I think it's a, the PD982, that is. Uh, PD982 that each radio or one radio in the set can serve as a repeater, stuff like this. Okay, suffice it to say, um, this did not exist in World War One. Nothing like this existed in World War One. Marconi was just kind of discovering how to communicate with with radio waves, you know, sending cross Atlantic radio signals in the in the HF band with not understanding the theory of resonance and all of that resonant antennas and and all the rest. But what you did have in World War One is you had machine guns really operating for the first time in large numbers. You had artillery, you had, you know, shrapnel and airburst artillery coming to the fore you know, explosive shells in large numbers for really the first time on a global scale, uh, you know, submarines coming out. So there were all these developments that had come out, but the ability to communicate, which is one of the most critical aspects of warfare, was still in the past, still using carrier pigeons. And they even saw some use in World War II as well. It's not to say that carrier pigeons, you know, were not a good option given the options they had, but it is to say that the communications technology had not advanced nearly as quickly as the killing technology, chlorine gas, I mean, mustard gas, all of this. I mean, by the way, the Russians don't even have communications this advanced for the most part. I've seen people using $20 Chinese Beofangs, Russian soldiers that don't have encryption, that don't, they're not even digital. Uh, they're, they're junky, you know, radios that are meant as basically toys or, you know, last ditch things. So this is something the Russians don't even have. And so, but I don't even think it's really a communications mismatch because they can at least communicate. They do have some encrypted radio technology and all of that. What I mean to say is that I think we could be in a position here where the realm of warfare that is advanced further than we even give it credit for perhaps is artificial intelligence. And what I mean by that is not that the artificial intelligence is actually intelligent, which it doesn't seem to be, but something like a chat GPT, which has existed for five, six, seven years within various niches, uh, is able to sort through large sections of data. That's what, say... Um, Palantir does. It's not that it's intelligence, it's just that it can consider way more data points than a human can consider. 
and can do it halfway logically. And so perhaps what is going on is that there are the Palantirs of the world and many others, you know, uh, General Dynamics IT has their own version of that, that in most, most people say works better. Lockheed has their own version. Uh, I'm sure the Russians have their own versions. And what may exist is that there's this mismatch where AI is playing a role in warfare, but the other parts of the warfare have not caught up to that. Whether it's communications, whether it is hypersonic missiles, whether it is any number of areas with respect to warfare have not caught up to the AI contribution to the equation. And then it may be the case that because of that, you have a receding of tactics back to trench warfare, back to like kind of what we see a stalemate, a stalemate. It's like, why don't we fly the planes over and do this? They know we're going to do that. How do they know? We didn't say it. We just brought up the idea now. So how would they know? Well, because the AI told them that that's what we were going to plan to do next. Just you and I here in this room. That's how. So you can perhaps run simulations within an AI-like system that tells you what the enemy's going to do before they decide to do it, which is a new realm of intelligence. Old intelligence is the enemy's decided to do something, find out as soon as possible before they actually do it. The new realm of intelligence might be predict what the enemy might decide to do, predict what their five options might be. Don't We don't need a source. But tell us who the source might be if we did want one. Tell us which of those they're going to come up with. And then their computers might say, tell us what their computers are going to say we're going to come up with so we can come up with something different. You see, we could have some kind of an AI arms race going on here that's causing this sort of stalemate and the other bits of technology, tactics, protocols, techniques. I said that out of order, I know, for you military guys have not caught up. And I strongly suspect that that is what's going on here. We can't hack. Why? They took their power plants off the internet. Hmm. You know, I mean, we can't hack this. Why? It's already been hacked. By who? We don't know. Someone else. They sold it to ransomware people over here. The whole server is encrypted. There's nothing to see. So I get this suspicion here that there's something like this happening. RT has great frontline reporting with embedded combat journals. Fine. I got to go find RT. It's, I see it less and less now because of the censorship. I got to do that. Go to Ukraine. Uh, let's see. Or we go to Ukraine too. Um, so... Is this an English creative writing exercise? Yeah, they're talking about the New York Times article. Yeah. Why does Nick Fuentes refuse to acknowledge that there are some good Jews like you? You know, I don't know. Um, I've debated him a number of times. What I would say is that I, I had this post. Anytime I post anything on Gab concerning Fuentes, Jews, anything like that, I get like 300 comments of just like bizarre, deranged, anti-Semitic memes, like just Jew-hating memes that are so strange and say more about the person posting them than they do about Jews. Uh, but 
I had this one post. I said, anybody who says Nick Fuentes is dangerous has never actually seen his fans. The Groypers are the most ineffectual looking people on the face of the planet. And they are, if you ever actually see these people. Uh, so I, I just, you know, I don't have too much time to concern with that, but uh, I can't concern much time with that. So it's all, it's all really, you know, it's all strange. I, I, it's just a, it's a bizarre movement, mostly made up of kind of inadequate types who, who, who have a complex, who, who need someone to blame. And, and it's a perfectly comfortable, it's a very comfortable ideology for them. The, the ideology is like a warm blanket. It, it makes them feel a lot better. And, um, and, and that's kind of what, what it is. So it's, uh, it's wild. But anyway, guys, this has ended up being a, a longer show than I thought, an hour 12 here. Um, thanks so much for joining me. Of course, you can support the show. I really appreciate your monetary support. Austin, I got a donation from you. MJ, thank you. Uh, many others on the you know anonymous side uh, don't want shout outs and all of that. You can, of course, send a note for the next show with or without a donation. You go to jacobwold.org slash contact. You can donate cash app real Jacob Bull or jacobwold.org slash podcast. Both of those work. I really appreciate the support. I, I really look forward to doing this show every Monday and Thursday. We'll be back on Thursday, 2 p.m. live right here on YouTube. Podcast apps everywhere shortly thereafter. And who knows, maybe we'll be back on Twitter soon. I really hope so. Thanks so much, guys. I appreciate it. Thursday, 2 p.m. live. See you then.